This afternoon we confess the Belgic Confession, Article 28 together, about the communion of saints with the true church. So now let us confess this together. We believe that since this holy assembly and congregation is of those who ought to be saved, and that there is no salvation outside of it, no one, regardless of whatever status or name he may be, ought to withdraw or separate his very self from it, so that being content with such a habit, he would live alone and apart. But on the contrary, each and every one ought to attach and hold themselves to this assembly and anxiously preserve the unity of the church, and they ought to subjugate their very selves to both its doctrine and its discipline, and finally, they ought to willingly place the neck under the yoke of Christ and serve the interests of the edification of the brethren as communal members of a single body, just as God has lavishly given to each one his own gifts. Furthermore, so that this may be better observed, it is the duty of all believers, according to the word of God, to separate their very selves from those who are established outside the church and to join their very selves to this assembly and congregation of the faithful wherever God has established it, regardless of whether hostile decrees of princes and magistrates forbid it, even those who would do so, indicating with a punishment of beheading and death of the body. And so, whoever withdraws from this true church or refuses to join themselves to it openly fights against the command of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider membership in the visible true church, we ask that you would be with us by your Spirit. Uh, help your servant to preach accurately and help us to hear, as always, the law convicting us of sin and the gospel convicting us of eternal life in Christ alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There are several uh, scripture lessons. Uh, the first is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. And then Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. And then Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So no need to turn there. Turn there if you wish. But we'll skip around here just a bit. First sermon text then. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Brothers and sisters, this is the holy word of God. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was a Christ. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take two 
Rather, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And finally, Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Word of God so far. Congregation of Christ and Friends, we come to the uh, third major section in our sermon series on the Reformed faith. This is uh, the section entitled Church Discipline. Now there are several aspects to church discipline that we'll cover, but this afternoon we begin with the foundation of church discipline, the biblical mandate of church membership in a true visible church. After all, the command to discipline those in the church makes no sense without church membership. So you can't discipline, you really can't have pastoral care unless you have a true visible church, which begs the necessity for membership in a church. So how should we think about this, membership in a church? What are some analogies we can draw? Well, in very basic terms, when we think about definitions, a member is a distinct part of a whole. For example, a tire, a car tire, is a member of or part of the whole car. By definition, a car is made up of many different discernible members or parts, and a tire means nothing without a car to which it is attached. In the same way, a human body is made up of many different members. A human foot belongs to a human body. You don't really recognize a foot without a body to which it is attached, right? Feet don't exist. They aren't real and alive apart from a whole human body. Also in terms of human interaction, different members define a family. You recognize a family when you see parents and children who live together and share the same last name. More broadly, discernible members make up clubs, social societies, and schools. Clubs, social societies, and schools mean nothing without discernible, recognizable members who are bound by expectations and accountability. Well, these examples of membership on basic levels and on more complex levels help to illustrate the necessity of the true visible church and membership within it. As you understand the visible church, you understand the necessity of church discipline. This discussion is critical because many today deny the biblical mandate that all Christians must 
belong to a true visible church. That is, many today will talk about the invisible church as if that's really all there is. And if there's only the invisible church, then you really don't have a need for a visible church where there's authority and accountability. In fact, of late, there have been some people that have explicitly said that were considered orthodox in the past. There is no need for the church, the visible church. Now, they won't deny that there's an invisible church. They'll say that there's no real expression on the earth, which is just preposterous and crazy and unbiblical. But that's how far we've shifted in historic Protestant churches. So again, the the general discussion here is of church discipline that starts a series of sermons on church discipline, but none of it makes sense unless we talk about the true visible church. So in this sermon, we'll first understand what church discipline is, and then second, we'll understand how the Bible actually argues for the true visible church and membership within that church. So first of all, what church discipline is. Church discipline is the third mark of the church. We say there are three marks to the true visible church. The first uh, is the preaching of the word accurately. The second is the proper administration of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And third, church discipline or discipleship in the church. Let me give you a very simple definition of church discipline. Church discipline is the action of the congregation in general and the consistory in particular to exhort Christians to obedience to God in order that the church may be holy. We repeat, church discipline is the action of the congregation in general and the consistory in particular to exhort Christians to obedience to God in order that the church may be holy or pure. Now, the word, you know, this all makes sense if you look at the words in both the Old and New Testaments dealing with discipline. They mean to exhort, to chastise, to rebuke, to train, to discipline, so on and so forth. So that's a basic definition of church discipline. What does it entail? Well, more on this in the next few weeks, but suffice it to say, our definition involves action from the entire church, both negative and positive, for the end of holiness in the church. And the church is called, after all, the body and the bride of Christ. So there are really three aspects to this definition. The first is that um, there's a general and particular component. Second, it is negative and it is positive. So if you notice, uh, in Matthew 18, church discipline is given really to the whole congregation, not just to ministers and elders, but to everyone. So, Jesus says, if you see your brother or sister in sin, you go to him or her and confront them. So we say, actually, there's a term we use sometimes called the power of the church. The power of the church resides in the whole church. It is particular when it's applied to the consistory. But everybody has a responsibility to confront one another uh, when there's sin or or problems. Uh, The particular uh, power is uh, vested in the consistory Uh, the offices of minister and elder. So that's the first component. The second is that church discipline is is negative. And typically when you mention church discipline, people think, oh yeah, there's the church again talking about all these negative things, hellfire and brimstone and and discipline. Like I got enough of that when I was growing up in home. Everything's negative. I get a spanking for this or that. Well, no. The church isn't just negative, but it does involve this negative aspect. 
According to 1 Corinthians 5, the unrepentant sinner must be dealt with directly, and if they refuse to repent over time, the ultimate step is excommunication. That's what Paul says. Uh, excommunicate, get rid of the person who denies the faith through their, their wrong doctrine or actions. Now, in context of our argument here, if there's no such thing as the visible church and membership in the church, how do you excommunicate somebody? From whom do you excommunicate? The invisible body of Christ? No. That's the risen Christ's job in the last day. Today, we only work with what is seen on the earth. You can't excommunicate somebody unless there is a visible church. So first of all, there's this general and uh, specific component Secondly, we see church discipline is negative. But thirdly, we understand that church discipline is positive. First Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow, fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So the officers of the church must care for the flock must help them, must preach to them, pray for them. And of course, the congregation as a whole is involved in shepherding in some respect. If somebody needs a meal, you make the meal. If somebody needs you to hold their hand when they're afraid, in whatever situation, you go to them. If they're in the hospital, you go to them. Yes, the officers have this responsibility, but so do you. And the Belgic is very clear that there's this thing called the communion of saints. So look at shepherding, all these wonderful aspects, positive aspects, are given to the congregation and the officers as well. So notice that church discipline really is a biblical thing and a tremendous blessing and benefit to Christians. One is taken care of spiritually and physically in the church. But again, this is not possible unless there is a visible expression of the church. That's simply our our first point, that this is what church discipline is. Secondly, how does the Bible argue for the true visible church? And it almost seems amazing that we would even have to say, here's the argument. So plain. But again, in our age, people deny the visible church. Well, what does church mean anyway? The Old and New Testament words literally mean an assembly or a gathering together. Right there, the argument's all over. So if there's just this invisible church, where does it gather? No, the Old and New Testament church is the assembly of those people together with their children who claim Christ's blood and righteousness. They, as the Old Testament often says, call upon the name of the Lord in a sense of denying themselves and confessing their faith in Christ before the world. And as we've mentioned, the true visible church is recognized by the marks of the true visible church. It must preach the word rightly, it must administer the sacraments rightly, and carry out church discipline in an authentic, real way according to the scriptures. Now listen again to part of Belgic Confession 28. We believe that since this holy assembly and congregation is of those who ought to be saved and that there's no salvation outside of it, no one, regardless of whatever status or name they may be, ought to withdraw or separate his very self from it so that being content with such a habit, he would live alone and apart. On the contrary, each and every one ought to attach and hold themselves to this assembly 
and anxiously preserve the unity of the church, and they ought to subjugate their very selves to both its doctrine and its discipline. And finally, they ought to willingly place the neck under the yoke of Christ and serve the interests of the edification of the brethren and sistren as communal members of a single body, just as God has lavishly given to each one his own gifts. Now, this phrase here, there's no salvation outside of it, usually causes spasms of unbelief. How can you say such a thing? But hold on, wait a minute. You have to understand what the confession is saying here. We could comment on this and say that what it means is there's no discernible salvation. Salvation is not known outside of the true visible church. There, we would say, yes, there are elect people outside of the true visible church, but we don't know that until they come into the true visible church. Again, the reality is created by the church itself. The essence of salvation, all the things we usually mean when we word, use the word save, uh, regeneration, faith, all these sorts of things, that's God's work. No man, no church building does that. It's the Spirit of God who does that. But it's realized, it's made real in a true visible church. So let's think of the example of a, a member of a family. Uh, families have very clear uh, duties, expectations, and accountability. There are rules by which you are bound, but also there are benefits. The family has ordinarily been very clearly organized and understood with clear boundaries and expectations. It is real. It is visible. So let's take the example of this person saying, I'm Timmy Smith. I'm a part of the Smith family. You say, oh, that's great, Timmy. Where's your family? Well, they're around. Okay. You get to know Timmy over time and you realize you never see Timmy's parents, you never see their home. Are you going to believe that Timmy Smith is really part of a family? Probably not. Realize that well, Timmy is kind of playing games here. Until you see the parents and the home, the last name, the birth certificate, and all these visible things, you don't believe Timmy. So in the same way, no one is a Christian. Nobody is in the covenant. Nobody's recognized as being saved in, until they're in a true visible church. And this is not just the Belgic. St. Augustine said the same thing in the 4th century. When his friend said to him, Hey, Augustine, I'm a Christian. I need to tell you in secret. He says, I won't believe you until you're in the church. So this is, this is what the true visible church is. It's a, it's a visible manifestation of the way in which God has worked among his people. Now, lastly, how does the Bible argue for the true visible church? Okay, so yeah, it sounds plausible that there could be this thing, but how does the Bible argue for it? Well, when you see it, it's all over the place, and it begins in the book of Genesis. Notice, the church, remember what church means, assembly, begins in Genesis 3.15. There, God preaches to Adam and Eve about the gospel, saying that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's a reference to Jesus Christ as the one who will defeat Satan. Now, Adam and Eve believe. To whom do they confess? They confess to God. Notice though, in what context do they confess their faith? Is it secret? Is it just in the heart? Nope. It's in a visible place. It's in, it's in the Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden is a visible, tangible church. 
It is the temple of God at that point. The way in which God has placed His people in this garden argues for a church, a gathering place. And Adam and Eve are priest and priestess. The word, they're to work the garden and to keep it. That's a priestly word. Search it in the Bible and it has all these references to priestly duties. They are to guard the garden in the sense of keeping it pure and holy, keeping evil intruders out, which they did not do. So that's, first of all, where we see the church existing. They believe they're gathered together under the preaching of God's word to them directly. But also you see the marks of the church in their early forms. Word, sacraments, discipline, right? The word is very clear. God speaks his word directly to Adam and Eve. They hear, they believe, or they disobey. Secondly, there are sacraments. Where are those? Well, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is really the very first sacrament. It's a key. It turns everything for Adam and Eve depending on their obedience or disobedience. If they obey God's word, the tree acts sacramentally to confirm their righteousness and holiness. But they disobey, they disobey, it turns them in the opposite direction. Also, the skins of animals are sacramental. This represents the fact that the righteousness of Christ ultimately is imputed to them. They believe not in their own righteousness, but in Christ's righteousness. They're covered, their shame is covered by these animal skins. Real, visible, tangible things. Okay, so we have word, God preaching to them. We have the sacraments, the tree, the skins. But also we have discipline. So there's accountability. And what happens? Adam and Eve are excommunicated from the garden. They're cast out. So there are the marks of the church in the Garden of Eden, the church. Now, when Jesus Christ comes into time and space preaching the kingdom of God, He is the fulfillment of the church that began in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus is the promised seed to whom the promises were made and in whom there is salvation. And those gathered together in his name constitute the visible church. This is what Jesus taught his disciples. He also commanded the disciples and the officers following them to do the marks of the church until he comes again. Hence why we read from Matthew 16, 18 and 28. So beginning in Matthew 16, Jesus says what? He will build his church upon Peter. That is, he will build his church upon Peter as apostle together with the disciples. This does not mean that Peter is the first pope, that he's building it on this man. He's building it upon the office of apostle and the office of prophets. Paul says this later on in Ephesians that the church is built upon what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets. They're preaching, their ministry. So that's what Jesus means here when he says he will build his church upon uh, Peter. He says the rock. It's the same, it sounds like the same word, the original for Peter. So these apostles and later on ministers and elders have the authority of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now again, this is very interesting because this uh, argues for this connection between the invisible heavens where God dwells and the visible earth where you understand God working in a visible, tangible way. After all, Christ is incarnate. He's not just invisible. He takes to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. He becomes man so you can understand salvation. He works salvation at the cross. And then the connection between the visible realm and the invisible 
is the keys of the kingdom of heaven. There, Jesus gives the authority to the disciples and those following him to open and close heaven according to what is proclaimed on the earth. Again, if this is invisible, this makes no sense at all. How is there a connection? You don't need a connection between the invisible and the invisible. You need a connection between the invisible and the visible. Then according to Matthew 18, Jesus teaches the steps of church discipline. Again, it's individual. Uh, Then it goes to um, corporate, or rather to the consistory. And Jesus says, as these people do these things, Christ is with them. That is, he is present by his spirit. But again, if there is no visible church, how does any of this work? To whom do you go with the unrepentant sinner if there is no visible church with visible authority structures? doesn't make sense at all. And finally, Matthew 28, the disciples are instructed by the risen Christ to teach and baptize not invisible people, but visible people entering into the visible church. Baptism is this very physical sign, sacrament, by which people are introduced into the visible church. Therefore, the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament expression of the church seals the reality of the visible church. And this visible church is spoken of everywhere in the Bible. Just a few examples. When God redeemed Israel out of Egypt, he redeemed a gathered visible community. Further, those Egyptians who believed in Yahweh came out with the Israelites. Now notice, the way people talk today about the invisible church, maybe they thought, well, you know, if the Egyptians believed in Yahweh, they would just stay in Egypt. No, they couldn't. They had to go out with a visible community. They couldn't hang out in Egypt and have their quiet times by themselves, thinking that they're okay with God. No, they had to go out with the visible community, the church. They had to be in the visible church. That's how they're known that they were saved. Likewise, as Israel formed in the Promised Land, they had visible structures in which to worship God and understand their salvation. Hence, right away, God has Israel make what? A tabernacle. And then it becomes situated in Jerusalem as the temple, a place of God's presence where people could see, they could smell the sacrifices. They had this visible arena in which they understood salvation and the comfort of salvation that Yahweh was present with them. Now notice, there were no anonymous Yahweh worshippers who said they, they believed in Yahweh unless they were a part of the institutional sacrificial system. Not one of them would have been satisfied, like people say today, to be outside of the visible community, hanging out, having quiet times, or letting somebody else lead a Bible study on the Torah. I mean, that's just silly. It's crazy. But this is essentially the argument today. No, there's this invisible realm where people can know they're saved because they trusted Jesus. And, you know, there could be these self-appointed Bible teachers and others and they have their Bibles and it's you, me, and Jesus and it's okay. No! The Bible does not allow that. You must be in a visible institution that's rightly formed and defined by the marks of the church. So just as... I mean, you did not have anonymous Yahweh worshippers in the Old Testament. Anybody that 
were convicted of their sin and wanted to believe in Yahweh, what did they do? They came into Israel. What is Israel? It is a visible kingdom of God on earth, a visible church. That's how people understood they were saved. Rahab and all these other people, the Egyptians, all of them came into this visible community. So also, God in the Old Testament had Israel take what? Censuses. This is the plural. Uh, occasionally, not always, they had Israel take a census. And God, after all, is a God of lists. This is what He does. And your names are what? Written in the book of life. They're not, it's not some abstraction. They're written down in a real book. And finally, as you come to the New Testament, the whole thing is chock full of references to the visible church. Is there an invisible church? Absolutely. But also, there's very much a visible expression of that church. Just a few examples. Jesus is worse the disciples, what? To take care of his sheep. The disciples, appointed people. Acts 2. People were baptized into what? The visible church. Peter says, Luke says, recording Peter's uh, activities with gospel preaching, there were added about 3,000 souls. And then later on you hear that God continued to add to their number. Acts 15. The visible Jerusalem council has authority over visible churches. Not just individuals doing whatever they want, but visible churches. Paul's pastoral letters mention the requirements for officers to whom people are accountable. Hebrews 13 says that you must obey these leaders who watch over your souls. Now again, to think about the silliness that you hear about today. Oh, well my Bible study leader is my accountability partner. Or so on and so forth on the internet helps me and ministers to me. Well, they don't care about you really in the way the church does. I mean, you may, may have a friend, a Bible study leader who really cares about you, but they don't have authority over your soul. They, they don't exist within a visible, authoritative institution like the church. And certainly the person on the internet or the TV really doesn't care about you. They're ministering supposedly to millions of people. How could they ever know about you or care about you? And you hear this all the time. I love you. We love you. That's nonsense. It's the lie. They can't love you. They don't even know you. They don't know your name. This is just false nonsense. And that's why God presses the issue of the true visible church where you'll be taken care of by people who have to give their life for you. I mean, have you thought about that? Brothers and sisters give their lives for one another. Just as somebody in your family gives their life for another family member. Officers of the church give their lives for you. They have to be willing to die for you. And that's the wonderful benefit of visible church membership. And then finally, Hebrews 10 says that you must not forsake the assembly of yourselves together. Church. It's a direct command from God. I mean, it means nothing unless there's a true visible church, right? That's what you must be a part of, brothers and sisters. So, in conclusion, first we've made it very clear that there is this thing called church discipline. It's something that involves a whole congregation of God, and a consistory in particular. It has a negative dimension in which people are exhorted to turn from their sin and punished, or not punished, but disciplined. They don't. And there's a positive dimension in which people are really taken care of in the church. There's real pastoral care and people that do things for you. 
Then secondly, it's very clear that the scriptures argue for the true visible church. There's, there is an invisible church, but there is also a visible church in which you know and understand God's salvation and love and care for you through Jesus Christ alone. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.